Hi, and welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Democracy will and must prevail. This podcast is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, direct from Washington, D.C., with support from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. There is so much at stake. Amid a quickly rising number of dictators, challenged elections, deep-rooted corruption, not to mention growing disinformation, in Latin America, democracy is in crisis. But in this episode of a two-part look navigating the Northern Triangle, we'll first hear from two of the consortium's country directors who offer a silver lining as they prepare to help Hondurans steer their presidential elections towards a victory for democracy. Then former U.S. Assistant Secretary for the Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, former ambassador to the OAS, Roger Noriega, shares his thoughts on what appears to be a critical and rapid decline of democracy in El Salvador. First, let's get a 360-degree look at the region from Amy Redlinski. Exactly 200 years ago, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua declared independence from Spain. Together, in 1821, those countries, along with the southern state of Mexico, created the Federal Republic of Central America. In one of the region's first acts of democracy, the Spanish commander, along with the royal Spanish governors at the time, were absorbed into the federation. But by 1840, after deep ideological differences and much bloodshed, the federation was dissolved. Today, Unprecedented waves of migration, rampant corruption, violence, and struggling economies have focused international attention to the region once again, particularly in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And once again, as new political landscapes take shape, the challenge remains how to best support democracy and the lives of citizens throughout the Northern Triangle. First, let's begin this deep dive on North Central America in Honduras, where the lead up to the nation's general elections are in high gear. Deborah Ulmer is the National Democratic Institute's Regional Director for Latin America and the Caribbean programs. She has spent half of her career living and working across Latin America. Maximo Zalvador is the Regional Director for the Americas at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. Max, a native Salvadorian, has served all over the region and joins us direct from San Salvador. Max, what's at stake in the upcoming Honduran elections? Well, I think it's the validation of Honduras' democracy, the alternation of power as a sign of maturity of its democracy, but also the solidity of its electoral system. As you remember, after the 2017 elections, which casted a shadow of doubt on its integrity with serious accusations of irregularities, the consequent constitutional reform on January 2019 created two new independent bodies. On one side, the National Elections Council to administer the elections, and on the other, the Electoral Justice Court to deal with the jurisdictional aspects of the elections. These two new entities now have the great responsibility not only to conduct successfully a free, fair, peaceful, transparent, and inclusive election, but also to put to the test their institutional capacity as well as their actions as the leading authorities on electoral matters. 
Yes, I would say, in, in addition to what Max uh, spoke to specifically about Honduras, I would say its stability in the Central American region is at stake. We already have Nicaragua uh, that the rest of Central America is concerned about. But we have in, in the northern part of Central America, three governments um, in different areas undermining rule of law, transparency, and freedom of speech uh, or movement um, by civil society and journalists. What role do we see corruption playing in Honduras in general or the elections specifically? Well, unfortunately, there was a lack of political will by the government of Honduras to renew the mandate of the Organization of American States mission to support the fight against corruption and impunity in Honduras, known as the Maxi. On the heels of the Maxi being shut down, the Honduras courts dismissed a case against two dozen legislators connected to a vast corruption scheme known as Pandora to embezzle public funds for political ends. In terms of the upcoming elections in November, many of those same legislators allegedly evolved in corruption are running as candidates again. And Honduran political analysts believe that the current president is looking to ensure that he is protected from future charges against him through a national assembly, which will elect a new attorney general and current reforms that are now undermining an impartial judicial system. With USAID's help, the consortium has been able to really give the country's fight for democracy a boost. Tell us what your teams have been doing. IFAS, as part of the SEPS team in Honduras under the USAID-funded ELECT program, has been supporting the National Elections Council as well as the Electoral Justice Court, and even a third organization, which is the Unit of Clean Politics, responsible for control, oversight, and accountability of political financing and campaign expenses. The support consists of technical assistance and sharing of best practices from the region on various areas like strategic communication, civic and voter education, biosecurity, and cybersecurity aspects, and a small sub-awards program for civil society organizations to contribute disseminating important messages to the citizens. Because there are concerns about post-election violence um, for these elections at the same level or worse than in 2017, with USAID support and working very closely with IFAS, NDI is working to develop bridges among a network of national election monitors, journalists, corruption watchdogs, the private sector, and the electoral authorities to either prevent or mitigate the potential for election-related conflict and violence. And with complementary funding from the State Department, NDI's partner, Red por la Equidad Democrática en Honduras, or the Democratic Equality Network in Honduras, made up of civil society organizations, academia, church and private sector groups, will be conducting long-term and election day observation hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with USAID support and conducting election-related violence and feeding that information into the electoral authorities again, working very closely with IFAS to ensure that we're doing everything this time around to facilitate dialogue, political dialogue, uh, so that common ground can be found. And hopefully we avoid the levels of violence that we saw in 2016 and 2017. Deborah, you touched on it a little bit, but Max, I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit more. Why is Honduras election important for the rest of Central America, the region? That's a very good question. I think if we can witness 
after the election, an undivided inauguration of a legitimate new president, it will certainly be a victory for democracy, not only in Honduras and Central America, but also in Latin America as a whole. It will be very important also to see how the new government of Honduras tackles critical issues currently affecting the region, such as illegal migration, human rights violation, and endemic corruption, drug trafficking, and gang-related violence. Deborah, in testimony that you gave to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee earlier this year, you summed up the elections in the region to say that they're contentious, quote unquote. Do you think that that characterization still stands? Well, I would like to clarify, I was uh, referring to the 2016 process uh, for Honduras. These elections I would characterize um, differently. We have extreme polarization. And the upcoming November 27th elections are going to occur in the context of incomplete electoral reform, as Max had alluded to, and a lack of uh, a legal framework for dealing with electoral justice, questions around how the votes will be counted, among other serious issues. So really, this is creating an environment of confusion that could be ripe for violence if the election authorities and political parties don't find common ground through dialogue. So I think a lot more is at stake. Uh, The last elections, there were questions by Hondurans about the legitimacy of the process due to the re-elections and question around how re-election emerged. This time around, we have multiple candidates at the legislative and at the presidential level that are being questioned for corruption. I agree completely with Deborah. I think, uh, as she said, it's a very polarized environment and there's a lot of uncertainty. However, Honduras has always managed through that dialogue that Deborah mentioned to those political negotiations to come out of these type of complicated situations and scenarios. Now, we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the new elections administrations, even with all the difficulties they have had. And they experienced this before in the primary elections, which happened in March. So they kind of tested themselves and we are confident. And and as Deborah said, that's why we are here to support them to overcome this hurdle. The Honduran people want the international community to be paying attention to what's happening. And I think, you know, we have, as the U.S. have been dealing with the worst case scenarios of democracy. And too often we don't see sort of the slow moving uh, signals of erosion. And we're at the point where we do, as Max mentioned, have new authorities, new electoral authorities who have shown willingness to to have dialogue, to reach out. And I think there is an opportunity for more transparency and therefore a, a more open process for the elections and therefore hope that Honduras can move beyond the, the current polarization. We're definitely confident that, that the elections will, will be managed uh, properly and uh, whatever cast shadow uh, was casted in the past elections in 2017, this time this will not be the same situation. Uh, Honduras needs, needs definitely a, a transition of power and, and a new chapter in its democracy. And I want to add that these elections will be highly observed. I think um, there's a lot of guarantees for for Observe and to make these elections transparent ones. And and we hope for the best. Well, we all hope for the best. There are so many things to pay attention to coming up in the next several weeks. Deborah Ulmer, Maximal Zaldivar, thank you so much for joining us today. (music) 
In El Salvador, democracy seems to be crumbling before our eyes. Earlier this year, President Bukele's New Ideas Party won the congressional majority. Immediately after the National Assembly convened, he then appointed five new justices to the Salvadorian Supreme Court and removed the independent attorney general in a way the United States says was unconstitutional. Then the magistrates overrode a long-standing interpretation of a constitutional ban on consecutive presidential re-elections, which in turn landed them on the United States' undemocratic and corrupt actors list. So what does all this mean? Well, in short, it sets the stage for Bukele to potentially seek a second five-year term in 2024. And it's grabbed the attention of democracy supporters everywhere. Meanwhile, Bukele says it's, quote, pure politics and the lowest kind of interference. The former U.S. ambassador to the Organization of American States and former assistant secretary for the Western Hemisphere, Roger Noriega, joins us now to try to help us make sense of what it is we're seeing. When President Bukele was elected to office in 2019, it was seen as a huge victory for democracy in Latin America. But now the country seems to be suffering an evident decline in its democracy. From your perspective, what is your reaction to what we're seeing in El Salvador today? Well, President Bukele won a democratically elected process. He won fair and square in a landslide. But he came in after 10 or 15 years of institutional challenges of uh, corruption, of uh, political parties that lost their credibility across the political spectrum. So he came in uh, at a time when a lot of Salvadorans themselves had lost interest or lost faith in a democratic process. What we've seen is in a really a young man in a hurry who has done in you know 18 months what Hugo Chavez didn't do for his first four or five years in in his long period in power, running roughshod over other institutions, physically going in with uh, armed soldiers into the legislative assembly in a way that caught a lot of people's attention, uh, that this is a person that had no respect for institutions. And uh, what you see really is uh, his using this immense political popularity that he has had to decimate the checks and balances of a normal democracy. Even at its worst in the previous decade, there was a certain semblance in the division of power. Uh, the last holdout was the courts, uh, and he did away with that uh, in June by replacing Supreme Court justices uh, that he did in, in an unlawful way. And just as importantly, firing a, uh, an attorney general, a prosecutor general, who was looking into criminality and corruption in his own regime. You don't sound surprised. No, not, not at all. I, I, quite frankly, I'd heard of Bukele when he was mayor of, of San Salvador. Uh, I know that he was a person who was estranged from the party, the FMLN party, and uh, someone with a very personalized agenda and very close ties to China that he tried to obscure and very close ties to a man named Jose Luis Merino, who is a uh, former FMLN chieftain who is uh, known not only for his uh, record as a guerrilla, but as a, uh, as a kidnapper and a, uh, someone who made common cause with the FARC guerrillas in Colombia and laundered hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for them. 
So you can't have those kinds of relationships and, uh, uh, you know, have those people deeply in your inner circle as he does now as president and expect people to believe that you're an agent of change. President Bukele's decision to remove the five judges from El Salvador's Supreme Court sure seems like a blatant move to commandeer the courts. What do you think might that indicate for the future of the country? Well, it indicates to me that this is a president who has no respect uh, for institutions. And uh, this is very troubling, obviously. When I have a functioning democracy, you have to have these so-called guardrails. In this case, the uh, court uh, in El Salvador was one of uh, the few institutions left that had a certain level of independence. Immediately after winning a, an extraordinary majority in the legislative assembly, the very first day, fired the prosecutor uh, who was looking at the corruption in his circle and fired the Supreme Court. Now, this was done by a vote of the legislative assembly, which apparently was totally unlawful. And this is the same legislative assembly that has now pronounced itself in a laughable way. I should say it is the same Supreme Court now that has pronounced that he is eligible for re-election, which people who a simple reading of the Constitution of El Salvador says that that's not the case. We've had many people say that this is just the Latin America playbook, that he's just reading right out of Chavez's plans directly. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a fair assessment. El Salvador has its own history. And remember that uh, the traditional political parties, the establishment political parties, lay out their, prepare the foundation for these kinds of authoritarian regimes because they lose their accountability to the people and uh, they lose their own credibility. And they essentially indicate to people that, if, that you need someone who wants to bust up the establishment, who wants to change the rules in order for it to, for the government to care about your interests. So yeah, you see this. What, what I will say is remarkable, as I said before, that Bukele has moved at a breakneck pace to consolidate himself uh, in power. Uh, he has his own clear agenda that he's following, and it's very personalized. And I think that he really will not tolerate anybody or any institutions getting in his way. Well, what do you make of him changing his Twitter profile to the coolest dictator in the world? Well, I think it's a cynicism that is uh, disturbing. I don't think it's very funny or clever to refer to yourself as a dictator in a, in a country where tens of thousands of people have lost their lives over the decades, establishing a democracy, dis destituting uh, a military dictatorship, late 70s and 80s, fighting civil wars. And those hard-earned achievements of the, of the Salvadoran people have been washed away by this cynical young man. And uh, I think that's very disturbing. He, he um, is someone who has certainly caught the attention of Biden administration, and they are doing their best to try to put some barriers and roadblocks but uh, until Bukele loses certain popularity in the country, until he pays price in the country, uh, I think he will see very few obstacles to him going forward with this uh, authoritarian agenda. You mentioned roadblocks and, and trying to manage the situation, but what options does the United States have to halt this kind of trajectory in El Salvador? Well, we have to be pretty transparent about our concerns. 
about the narco-trafficking within his regime, about the pacts that he has made with gangs, about the fact that he's put leading gangsters in his government and, and acting within his political party. These are very serious issues that have to be addressed. I think uh, is to a certain extent, this is a law enforcement problem, and there should be accountability on that level. As I said, I don't think that he's necessarily going to lose altitude politically uh, until the people of El Salvador see a cost for this behavior. And part of that is economic. If I were looking to invest in El Salvador, I would think twice. He probably thinks he has that wired up with the Chinese, probably. But at the same time, a pressing issue is what will the International Monetary Fund do? Will the United States sit by while the IMF cuts a check for hundreds of millions of dollars, another check for hundreds of millions of dollars to that government, uh, which uh, is pulling through all of the conditions, preconditions for previous uh, IMF support? Pretty sure that the State Department folks are taking a very serious look at that and considering their options. You mentioned the economy. We've seen El Salvador roll into being the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin just a, a couple of weeks ago, really. Why is this so important to El Salvador and the global community? And how do you think that rollout of legal tender is going? Well, I think it's been a bit debacle, essentially, for the Bukele administration. Uh, he was riding very high politically. Whether he admits it or not, there are some polls that indicate that he has paid quite a price in terms of popularity because of Bitcoin, still fairly popular, but people really rejected it across the board. And so you have to wonder, what's he up to? As I see analysts who look at, uh, you know, who look at this whole cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and that cyber currency, I should say, uh, world, they say, you know, there's really, it makes no sense uh, for people to consider this Bitcoin to be a, a normal currency. What is the currency of El Salvador today? Well, there, it's a dollarized economy. And a lot of what the economic progress that El Salvador managed to make while other countries are sliding behind was because it was a dollarized economy. There are some who are saying that uh, the introduction of Bitcoin in a dollarized economy is a gift, essentially, to people who are shady business, including traffickers who want to find a way of laundering uh, U.S. dollars uh, and, and move them around. The instability that's growing in El Salvador, how does that affect the rest of the region? Well, the rest of the region is troubled, quite frankly. And uh, El Salvador is kind of falling right in line, which is a bit of a shame. This is a country that managed economic growth in the middle of civil war. These are industrious people. They're hardworking people. Anybody that knows El Salvador knows this to be a fact. You know, it's a shame to see the lawlessness that really set loose 20, 25 years ago, decimate the institutions in Central America, in several Central American countries, where weak institutions and corruptible politicians gave in to the very serious violent pressure of narco-traffic. And you see what's happened in Venezuela, which came into this very dangerous confluence of criminality and theft and a lack of accountability to where they lost their country. And you have now a narco regime there that is mm -hmm. making common cause with countries in the region and with criminal organizations in the region to attack democracy in a systemic way. 
the Biden administration has a vision of El Salvador. There are serious doubts about where Bukele is headed. There is a bipartisan concern uh, in Congress for where Bukele is headed. They have been using essentially sanctions against individuals in the country. And I think that we need to have a a tougher uh, position vis-a-vis the IMF to indicate that we're very serious, that we don't really want uh, international monetary fund to throw a lifeline to an autocrat. But there has to be some accountability. Well, thank you, Roger Noriega. So much to pay attention to going forward. We really appreciate you helping us thread the needle on El Salvador. The consortium's partner at the International Republican Institute has a secret weapon they haven't rolled out in a while. Jorge Zabalas, IRI's resident program director for El Salvador and the consortium's country director for El Salvador, joins me direct from San Salvador with more. Thank you so much for being here, Jorge. Hey, Ben. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. What can you tell us about the Bota bus? Well, the Bota bus was born in 2018 electoral process as part of the IRA activities to support the TSC in the citizen participation. The Botabus is a plot of farm that comes to the streets or squares in El Salvador and bring to the citizens in a way that they can learn about the ways that they can vote. Here in El Salvador, they can vote for a face, a person, a, a party flag, or crossbow, both for two different people in the same ballot. So the idea to bring the votables is that the people can understand and they can use technology, but sometimes they don't have access. So the votables come to them and give them the tools to learn about the electoral process. So how does it really work? The Boda bus comes into town and the citizens can walk on board and ask questions? Yes. The idea is that the, the, the Boda bus stayed in one square of the municipalities and the citizens can come to the bus and a team can show them in a computer the different ways to vote. They can learn about the electoral law so the idea is that citizens create confidence with the TSC and with the electoral process. Why is a tool like the Botabus important in a place like El Salvador or other places in Central America? The idea of this tool is to create more citizen participation and obviously create community bonds. Because when a team from the TSC and I arrive, talk to the people and demonstrate that it's easy to vote and learn about the electoral law and processes, they feel part of that. I know Facebook is extraordinarily popular in El Salvador. How does social media play into something like the Bodabus? Does it at all? Well, it's part of the work we did in 2018 and 2019 electoral process because some citizens posted in their accounts that they were in the Botabus. So in the next town, they know how is the Botabus and they want to participate. So it's important. Obviously, we have to understand that social media right now, it's important for good things, but we have to be careful for bad things. So in the Botabus, always 
have some popularity in Peklu because the people know when we arrive so a new town. Do you have any statistics on, on where all you've been in El Salvador? It's uh, more than 10 people, 10,000 people participating in, in that scene. So it's a good number for the exercise. So the idea is teach and learn from the, the citizens and try to improve the classroom from the DSE. Do you think we'll see the Bota bus back in action anytime soon? Well, we're working for the 2024 election process, and we hope that the Bota bus can again and well visit uh, squares and streets of El Salvador, and especially to create more community with the citizens and try that they improve their the way that to see the electoral process. Jorge Zabayas in San Salvador, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. This podcast has been produced by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the U.S. government and is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit www.seps.org forward slash podcast.